0: It's Kali.
1: What's, what's up? Hey, y'all. What's up? You're about to listen to facts, stories, interviews, gossip, live music, booty bump and beats, and much more fascinating things that will be so stunning, there's a possibility that your mind will blow.
2: This show will start...
1: Five, four, three, two, one. 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 Due to the coronavirus, the following show is being produced and broadcast by the Yolokali youth from their homes. So sit back, relax at home, and enjoy the show.
3: Welcome, you're listening to What's Up on WLPN-LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, broadcasting from our homes. Hello, my name is Nidia. I'm Adrian. I'm Cynthia. Emanuel. Jennifer.
4: August. And Miles.
3: And this is the third show of Season 17, The People's Budget Show. Now let's get started on today's show.
4: Every year, the city of Chicago decides where to invest our tax dollars. These choices affect our lives and communities for generations. With funding from the government, there are different categories which the government created to become more precise with how the money is spent through the city budget. These categories include health, education, housing, infrastructure, community resources, and the carceral system. These six categories greatly affect how Chicago spends its money. is made.
1: doors closing
0: let's talk chicago chicago's city budget to be specific in where your tax dollars go for investment into the city There are five main categories when it comes to dispersing funds. However, there are multiple and they all consist of different percentages that come from Chicago's budget annually. In 2020, our city budget was $12.6 billion. The list consists of health, education, housing, infrastructure, and carceral systems. Going down to the statistics, because we use receipts around here, aside from Chicago paying off Financial General aka loans coming to 46.9%, the budget generously funds CPD at 13.97%, the highest on the Chicago budget breakdown list. The city's residents all have mixed opinions and emotions about our budget and the way the money is spent in the city overall. However, many of them are unaware about our budget annually, the five main categories, and the processing of percentages. As a city, we should all make it our priority to hold knowledge on the people's budget for Chicago. And we all deserve a word as to how we believe as a collective our money should be spent around the city. Hey, can somebody get me a drumroll, please? Please, anybody? Yeah. Thank you, about time. The million-dollar question, or should I say the billion-dollar question instead, What would you do with Chicago's $12.6 billion budget for bettering the city?
5: It is important that the government knows its people to create a good estimate of money to be put into all these categories. However, that is an issue in today's age. The government in Chicago isn't listening to the voices of these people and their communities as well. The people aren't being informed about the importance of this decision. This is why organizations are starting to raise eyebrows by telling people the importance of Chicago's budget as well as whether or not the government is responsible for using the money in the correct categories, one of these organizations being Chicago United for Equity.
2: So can you tell us your name and
0: your age and the community you're
6: from? My name is Rogelio V. I'm 42 years old. I'm the second platoon leader for the Mission Continues right now i'm connected i'm collaborating with local organizations here in the little village uh, community i was born and raised here in little village uh, graduated from fragan from spry school got family living here so i'm very very uh connected to the little village community and i've been out here through the mission continues you know collaborating with local organizations such as yolo Kali and Lasser for the last two or three years and universidad popular
0: can you tell me like your favorite part of the little village here
6: my favorite part of little village ah uh, Everything, everything. Like I said, I was born and raised here, so I have strong roots here. Uh, this place is very vibrant. It's beautiful. The culture, uh, the foods, the uh, activity. It, it's just a, a beautiful community that when, when at the end, when it's, when you need to, they need to, they come together, we unite, and we get a lot accomplished. And we have a lot of great community leaders here as well. So uh, also the political leaders, the community leaders, our veterans, uh, it, it's, it's just a wonderful community. It's a very strong, strong community.
7: David Lopez. i Miguel Gutierrez.
5: And what community are you guys representing?
6: I'm from
7: Little
6: Village. I'm from Scottsdale.
5: What would you say are your favorite parts of your neighborhood?
7: Well, my, uh,
8: like the middle school that I live nearby, it has a turf field. So I feel like uh, there's already a large community there. A Bunch of soccer players, people that ride their bikes,
7: or people that just want to go to the park. What I like about my neighborhood is that there's a lot of a lot of good food here, a lot of good tacos, um, and I really like the, the parks. Um, it's a really they have a lot of nice you know looking parks, and we have a lot of yeah a lot of bike riders and a lot of people who like to play soccer and basketball here.
0: So.
7: I'm Officer Rodriguez. Um, I'm Officer Ten of with the Chicago Police Department. We were with the community engagement team. Uh, We actually cover the whole city. We're a citywide team. So it could be the north side, south side, west side, or east side. So just within the city limits. What are some of your favorite parts of of the neighborhoods you work in? Uh, Favorite parts uh, would just be interacting with the people in a positive way, whether it be handing out hot meals uh, or even helping up with a community cleanup. um, And the ultimate goal for that is just, you know, building positive relationships and just see people smiling and we working as one.
2: I feel like uh, encouraging the community as well as um, you know just being there and supporting them. My name is Fanny Diego Alvarez and I am a community resident of Little Village. I am also a Chicago United for Equity board member and my day job I am actually an education funder with the Grand Victoria Foundation so that means that I work with different organizations across the state of Illinois and I allocate resources so they get the work that they think is most important done. Favorite parts of the neighborhood? Oh my God, the food, all the tacos, all the different tacos. And other things that I really love about the neighborhood is being able to walk down the street and always seeing someone that you know, someone that you grew up with, uh, someone that uh, interviewed you a few years ago, um, you know, it's just a very uh, community centered, family centered space. Um, so I love that about Little Village. And I love how many young people are in Little Village. It's a very youthful uh, community.
0: In your opinion, can you tell me what you think our community needs to be thriving and safe?
6: Ah, uh, the. I think that uh, some of the issues that the mission continues uh, has been uh, really working closely with Little Village is is, is other missions that other local organizations are already combating or confronting, and and some of those issues are are youth uh, violence, uh, I think uh, food insecurity, and uh, homelessness. So I think those are some of the things that, that we really need to focus on here in the Little Village community. I think the uh, the economic situation, the lack of opportunities. Um, I guess uh, more support, more 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 leadership, more more uh, opportunities, more than all, and uh, education, our programings, youth programming. I mean, we need all those things. I think it's a combination of things that can uh, that can help with those issues. But it is uh, prevalent, and uh, but that's one thing that we're out here trying to to help out with.
9: I don't know enough about this community, but I think what I think just generally to be more safe and thriving is for people to be looking out for each other and for people to realize that they're part of a community, Mm -hmm. which means that you think about other people and how what you do and what you say and how you act Uh really affects everybody else in the community. And that if people do think about that more, I think that everybody will be better off.
0: What do you think our community needs to be safe and thriving?
10: I think a safe community starts with a resilient community, and so um, very low hunger rates, high graduation rates, low homelessness rates, and a community that comes out like this in this population that shows up for each other, I think will be strong and resilient no matter what.
5: In your opinion, what does our community need to be safe and
4: thriving?
11: I'll say it probably starts in the uh, like the schooling system, like
7: probably more, more funding for school to make sure that the children are engaged and learning a lot more things. Uh, well, I think what we need to be safe as a community is that uh, um, I think we need more you know patrolling, obviously more police patrolling the streets, and I think that'll try to leave an impact and keep more bangers out. The street.
2: So our community needs, I think, you know, like we can begin by like saying, oh, you know, like obviously housing, access to better jobs and, you know, a series of things. But I think ultimately one of the things that's really missing that I think we forget about regularly and we think about it as an afterthought is we need to make sure that the voices of young people, parents, you know, older folks that they're actually listened to, right? Because like, I think that there's an assumption that when you, I don't know, go to school, have a college degree, or you're an elected official, that like you know it all, right? But you may have good ideas, but if they're not like reflecting what the people in the community want, then then your good ideas may actually not be that great. So I think we need more spaces that really center the voices of those that are most impacted by policy, like young folks, like parents, And like,
1: you know, senior citizens, for example. And we're back. So you all just heard of Vox Pop with our radio team from Your Story, Your Way. We went out to Yolokali, the Yolokali Garden on 28th and Ridgeway on July 17th. And there was a huge gardening event with many different organizations that came out. And we went and took the opportunity to interview community residents, and even people just visiting the community to ask them about the people's budget and the communities that they were representing. But now let's flip that and ask ourselves the same questions. So y'all, let's have a group conversation and I'll just throw out the first questions. What communities are we representing and connected to today?
5: We've got Little Village here.
4: Also also Little Village here. Yeah, there's quite a few of us here. I'm also from Little Village as well.
1: And I'm also from Little Village.
3: I would say the west side of Humble
12: Park.
1: And Colorado. And I'm from out in the west suburbs from Lyons. Oof. But I am really connected to North Lawndale and Little Village. So next, what are our favorite parts of the communities that we are representing?
5: I think you'll probably hear this. I know someone said it in the recording And if you ask others, they'll probably say the same thing, but the food, the food is so good. And I probably, sound I don't know how I sound saying that, but we have so many different types of food, even within the neighborhood. Like if you, I think we have like a Mexican sushi place too. We have a lot of different things, really, whatever you're craving, you could probably find. And if not, then you could start it up. But I mean, I love food and I think You know, our culture is very rich in food. And that's one of my favorite things.
0: I agree with you, Cynthia. I think you might mean like the whole 26 in general, like the food area. So I love 26 as well. I love going into like these little shops that they have there. And the food is good. I've also had from like that sushi place that you were talking about. It's pretty good.
8: Yeah, I can definitely agree with you guys on the food. Because whenever I go to school, I find myself missing it or comparing it to whatever like Food is around there. And then when I get back home, that's when I'm, I'm happy getting food from anywhere I want. So it's always really nice being able to get whatever kind of food, like if Mexican, American. Like you said, there's a sushi place, so that's pretty good.
3: I would say that uh, the people in my community are really great. Uh, we always look out after one another, and um, we're always there for each other. If somebody that's not familiar is in the neighborhood, you know, Um, That sometimes raises suspicion and it's kind of like, um, like security wise, we're always looking out for each other, which is good for the neighborhood.
4: I like that point. I think it extends to Little Village somewhat. I remember uh, I was in a car ride with a friend and to make a point on how friendly our our neighborhood was, he rolled down the window while he was driving and said, and said, what's up to the first person he saw? It was like an old old dude crossing the street. He said, buenos dias. And he, he just responded right back. He's like, uh, yeah, yeah. He said good morning too. He said good morning back. And then and then he turned to me and he said, I don't even know that guy, you know? So that was that was pretty cool.
5: You know, I actually really like that. I've noticed, I know not everyone does it, but um, on my block, everyone kind of just, you know, if you see each other in the morning, buenos dias, or at a gardening event, I walked it there and I saw our neighbor and I was like, oh, you know, buenos dias. And she's like, oh, mija, que Dios te bendiga. And I was like, I didn't didn't know I needed that, but thank you so much. (laughs) Like, I don't know. The people are also just so welcoming, like heartwarming. It's like we have just lived on this block forever. But, you know, you're going to bless me this morning because I said good morning to you. So thank you.
1: Yes, there's such a strong sense of community here. And I think another important thing is all the different ways that for me personally, and I mean, I know we can all agree with this. The different ways that it like feeds us, whether it's socially, physically with all the food, spiritually, emotionally, like because I have family here. So, you know, I'm always spending time with family, sleeping over, partying. I also go to church here. I go to Good Shepherd Church. So I pray here. I go to folkloric dance class that's here and the dance studio is also in Little Village. And so there's just so much here that we all are connected to in like multiple ways, more than, you know, just sleeping here, our house and being here. Okay, moving on, I'll ask the next question. Um, and so what do we think our community needs to be safe and thriving? Uh, I think for Little Village,
4: or well, really, there, there could be hundreds and hundreds of answers, you know, I think maybe like on a small scale, like uh, I said this before in the in the workshop that we did with the people's budget, but I think like, well lit streets more street lights you know that's like a it's a small thing but it plays a big role especially at night when you're walking and you're walking down like a really dark street it's it's completely different from when you're walking down like 26th street you know at night and there's like lights everywhere and it's bustling you know so you got to like maybe maybe something like that or maybe on the big on the bigger scale our community faces a lot of violence you know like that's a big problem in our community and like to see it thrive you would need to have something to not only react to violence like like the police but to prevent it entirely you know or like give these kids or anyone who like who may perpetrate violence on their own community a different way to express themselves or spend them their time or or something productive you know other than being forced to to be on the street for whatever whatever caused it you know
3: i feel for like humble park the west side of Humboldt Park, but I think overall Humboldt Park. I've been thinking about like four different or five different categories, Uh, transportation, local youth centers, fundraising events, security, and urban development. And transportation-wise, I think we definitely need more bike lanes. I feel like that plays a crucial role. Not all teens have cars. And even if we want to take the bus, you know, sometimes it could be, we could waste time waiting for the bus when we can just take our bikes. And it's also quite dangerous to just be riding your bike in the street like that. Uh, so I think transportation, that's one thing we can do. For fundraising events, I think that that's also important. That's how you bring money into the community. And I think having more networking, you know, posting stuff on social media, getting the word out for these fundraising events, getting people like the alderman, maybe Mayor Lightfoot, to these events could help bring in more people, more money to a community. Local youth centers, I mean, I cannot stress this enough. They are so important to creating a better or new generation of people who are involved in their community. We need local youth centers. When kids don't have anything to do in the summer, where do they go? Typically it's either a gang or they are just roaming in the street. We need somewhere for these kids to go and I think a good example of a center that has done really well with this is After School Matters. You know, they pay you if you attend and then you not only are you off the streets, but you're, you're also learning stuff. You're engaging with other people in different communities. So I think local youth centers are really important. Security, I feel like um, policing in Humboldt Park is crucial, um, especially with gang affiliated crimes. And urban development, similar to what you said, August, um, having streetlights, having larger sidewalks to walk on, I think having more, like pedestrian signs and stop signs, um, road bumps, are important because, let's for example, you could say a road bump uh, prevents you from going fast and driving really fast. And that also prevents you from getting into an accident or hurting somebody. So I think those little things really matter.
5: Yeah, I think, you know, violence prevention, community resources, just really having everyone involved all the time and things they enjoy, you know. I know I think we have street art, the locality has street art, which I have always seen very popular, really getting to the root of like what the youth wants to see and providing it. Like you said, to
0: have them involved in the summer is very important. Following what you just said, Cynthia, I feel like this is like a very minor detail, but I think I would love, well, I would love to see like, kind of like the garden events that we had to help beautify the neighborhood, but also get people involved. I think that would be really great to have it be a very, you know, often thing that we do during the summer or a different kind of season, you know?
8: Yeah, I can definitely agree. There should definitely be a lot more like community events to bring everyone together so that everyone together is making the neighborhood a better place so that everyone's voice is heard because I feel like part of it is that only some people are giving out their their voice and some people feel left out, but they choose to stay quiet, which is why they don't get kind of like what they want. So I don't know. I feel like more people should be able to like open up their voice and come together with others to make the neighborhood a better place for everyone.
5: Um. Yeah, I definitely agree and you know talking about people's voice i think for many of us you know this workshop was like a very great opportunity but prior to the workshop did any of
12: you
0: really know the process of the city's budget if i'm being honest no i mean now that you know after the workshop and everything i have like a very like brief understanding of it now but it's very interesting to know now what you didn't know because it's like I'm I'm a little more educated now. You know, that's always good.
4: Yeah, also I I could agree with that. I wasn't I wasn't very informed on it. I know it's is really up to us to inform ourselves, you know. But I feel like this should be taught in our schools. This is like uh it's a really important part and I think as citizens it's like almost our duty, you know to inform ourselves or or at least like have some inkling of thought on where this money is going you know
5: along with that I know most of us are like um, residents of Little Village or spend the majority of our time here do you guys know your older person or also before the workshop if I'm not mistaken we were told who it is but prior to that did you guys have any idea who it
0: was no embarrassingly no I didn't know
8: I had remembered hearing his name before because of Hanan, and someone had interviewed him before that. But I kind of just forgot his name until we heard it again this weekend. So it was just, I I didn't really pay any mind to who the elder person was up to this point.
3: For the west side of Helmo Park, I would say, honestly, no. Even until this day, I, I grew up in that neighborhood for 10 years, and I never really knew who the alderman was. And I think maybe it's campaigning wise, or maybe because I never looked into it, but I also think it's important for aldermans to go into their neighborhoods and introduce themselves because I don't think within those 10 years I've ever been interested, the alderman or somebody that works for the alderman has came to where I lived and said, oh, okay, make sure to vote and whatever. So it's... I think that's probably why also the alderman's involvement in the neighborhood
5: might not be as much. I think that's really important with the involvement of the older person or alderman because well, speaking from experience, I knew who our elder person was like growing up because he was our older person for so many years. I don't know if the little village residents can like back me up on this one, but I really don't know how many years Munoz was in office, but we knew who he was because he had been in office for so long versus as of recently, um, the 22nd Ward, not just Little Village, but the 22nd Ward's alderman is Mike Rodriguez. And I think this change happened like two years ago that he was voted into office. But definitely I have seen more like promotion with him and any events that happen, he tries to go. We we saw him at the garden, you know, many of us got the chance to meet him there. So I think that has a lot to do with it as well. I have a question for you guys, and it just came up right now. Just some like background
3: history AOC she lives in New York and there was I think they had like a local alderman or something like that and she was running for it uh, but there's aldermen's out there who have been in like power or in seat for about 15-20 years and then you have new progressive new generations of younger people coming into and wanting to be in that position what do you guys think about that like And because the older aldermen that that have been there for like 20, 30 years and haven't done much, but then this new progressive person tries to come in and also trying to compete with them. So what do you guys think about that?
4: I think it's a really good thing that more progressive politicians are stepping into those roles because I'm not going to speak for for all of them. I don't know everyone's views on that, but I feel like if you're going to get like a, a certain age range of people you're missing out on a lot of concerns from like a different demographic you know people who are 40 and up um may not be aware or or what what's important to us uh might not be important to them you know or uh you know like their their views uh might be completely different and and if we have no one representing our views then it's kind of there's inequity there you know
5: I think that leads great into the next question that's kind of like, how do we get our youth interested in these type of topics? Like, I know I had not known about the budget at all before this workshop, but it was very engaging, very informative at the same time. How do you guys think we can get more people like us, I guess I could say, interested in this or involved?
8: I'd say probably more workshops like that. I feel like usually with stuff like that, I tend to get bored really easily But when I was into that workshop, it actually kept me kind of engaged. I was actually listening to what was going on. And then not only that, but I feel like also letting people know how it actually affects them. Because I remember while we were reading the information, one of the things that each ward gets was like a certain amount of money that's used for like infrastructure. So for example, they use that for potholes. Like most people our age at this point are driving or using cars in some way. So obviously having big potholes, size of a small pond is going to affect them, their car, stuff like that. And letting them know this information, I feel like it would lead them to be like, can you do this? Like being more open, using their voice, trying to get the alderman to do what they need to do with that money, or just trying to learn more to see what they can do or what they can say to get stuff like this fixed.
4: I don't know about any of y'all, but before this workshop, and before like researching anything, I was under the presumption that my voice wouldn't be heard, even if I spoke of, you know what I mean? That like my opinion or, or concerns would just go off to the wayside and they wouldn't be listened to maybe by the alderman or by whoever was in charge, you know? And what we found was that's really not the case that later in our interview with Mike Rodriguez, he says he's open, he's open, he's willing to hear what we have to say. And he even agrees with some of the points we have to make, you know. So I think that's uh that's something to think about, you know. If you're young and you feel like, you know, I can't make a difference that way, it's I mean, it's not true. And it's especially not true for a giant group of us all saying the same thing, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, well, thank you all so much for sharing. It was great hearing what we all had to say. And we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with a very special interview. So y'all stay tuned. Don't forget that you're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, and this is What's Up.
12: And we're back. You're listening to What's Up on WLPN LP Chicago Lumpen Radio, broadcasting from our homes. Up next, we'll be listening to an interview with the amazing Nikita, member of Chicago United for Equity. Before doing the work she does in 2016, Nikita Brar and Elizabeth Greer met on the local school council of National Teachers Academy and began working together to promote educational equity in their neighborhood. However, the next year, CPS stated their interest in closing the elementary school where the two women worked, while the NTA displaced its majority of low-income students. This led the two ladies to work with their community to address this issue. Since then, they've done work with Chicago United for equity, which has led to the policy-making process called the REIA.
0: They have accomplished fighting inequality in low-income neighborhoods by training 200 people in the process of the tool. For more RA process, have seen RIAs embedded in the blueprints of organizers and new government leads across Chicago. Nikita and her team go out to teach others about the budget the city comes up with each year. More importantly, let people know that the people can also make an impact on the yearly budget for themselves. Let's take a listen and see what this amazing person has to say. Hi, Tiffany. Thank you so much for being here today. Could you like give us um, your name and your role?
9: Um, Yeah, so my name is Nikita Brar. I am the founding executive director of Chicago United for Equity, or Q for short, and that's, you know, part of why I'm here today. Um, What do you guys like to do in the city for fun? Clubs, concerts? I mean, there's so many things that I love doing in the city. I think most of all, especially during this pandemic, really just enjoying our, you know, green space or walking around, being able to take long walks. sounds kind of boring, but I feel like, you know, honestly, with the pandemic, we haven't really uh, gone to concerts, you know, movies, things like that haven't been big. I used to love and I'm starting to get back into, you know, just going out and eating. I love our food in our city. I feel like our city is um, definitely one of the best places in the country to find amazing food and just getting to explore different neighborhoods and have amazing food, explore the lake, spend time with my kid and, you know, all those things are things that I love doing.
12: Uh, How do you feel about people not knowing who their older person or having real any insight of the budget process?
9: Well, that's something that bothers me a lot. I love having um, the moment to sort of make sure that people know, you know, who's in charge, who's responsible to to answer to you. You know, at the end of the day, um, our older people are supposed to work for us and they're supposed to be our voice in city government to sort of push for the things that our communities want. And so often we don't know our older people. So if we don't know our older people, how could they know us and how could they know what they're supposed to be fighting for?
12: Could you possibly explain to us what does Q Act like do per se?
9: Sure. Um, So we're a community of racial justice advocates that are working on shifting power. Um, So we do that by looking at specific policy issues, whether it's a school closing, housing development, um, or this year, we're working on the budget, and the last year, that's what we've been working on as well. And what we want to do is always bring the power to make those decisions as close to the communities who are living those decisions and the outcomes of those decisions. Um, so we do that in a lot of different ways, but most of the time, it really comes down to how are we working with neighborhoods and residents and neighborhoods to build power, to understand the policy issue, and to then um, get involved, you know, uh, whether that's calling their alderman, uh, calling the mayor, protesting, making art, doing an issue campaign, whatever they want to do. Uh, We're not very instructive on like, how do you need to do this? But what we have is kind of experience from multiple campaigns to say, here's what, you know, uh, what we've learned. Um, And then whatever the neighborhood and community wants to do to try to activate that. So in the budget work that we're doing, I think that's really boils down to how are we bringing the power to make the budget as close to the people that are in neighborhoods, not receiving enough funding.
12: How do you find collaborators? How do you outreach for volunteers for your team?
9: Well, we we do that a few different ways. So one is we run a fellowship program. Um, we believe deeply in fellowshipping or just sitting together and learning about who we are before we show up and ask people to, you know, give something or take something, right? A lot of organizing in Chicago historically has been super transactional. Show up for me. I'll show up for you. Maybe. Uh, how many people can you bring, you know? Um, and so there's not often space to just talk about like who you are as a person. How did you get here? What drives you? What motivates you? what makes you passionate about your work. And there also isn't often space for us to build those relationships across the different types of work we do. Organizers hang out with organizers, right? Artists hang out with artists, like policy people may hang out with policy people. And so what we really want to do is create this fellowship space, which we've been running for four years now, where 30 people each year come together and sit together and share like stories of our own trauma and the work that we've seen, right, the work that we've done. Um, The majority of our group is about 80% are women or non-binary folks, about 80% are people of color. And so, you know, a lot of that is unpacking the ways in which we're tokenized or marginalized in different spaces. How do we work through that? How do we make sure that we show up for our community, but not in place of our community? So that space, builds a lot of bonds and relationships and then when we do projects and we go out and say let's talk about the budget right then then we're coming at that conversation not as transactionally but as saying like who do you know right who wants to be part of this conversation who do you know who should be part of this conversation
12: and how would you say people's investments in Q have helped you expand
9: well I mean significantly uh we from the time that people spend helping us figure out like how should we grow? What should we be working on? We have community um, organizations who partner with us and help us think through like what's the most important thing that we can help move on this year. We can't do everything. Every year, we have way more things that people want us to work on than we have capacity for. And so, you know, from people giving us time and their insight, their support, Um, sharing the ideas with other people, to people investing dollars so we can grow our team. We're a really small team. We still only have three people on staff, but it's small and mighty because we have, you know, over 150 people who have gone through the fellowship. Um, We have thousands of people who have participated in different projects. One project, one year, year we had over 2,500 people participating in the work. So I think, you know, just seeing the ways in which a small team with a lot of, people who just love the city and want to see it do do different, right? Do different by our neighbors, by our communities. I think that's what, that's the biggest investment that people can make in it. Could you talk
0: about the process of the racial equity impact assessment that you use?
9: Yeah, so the racial equity impact assessment or the REIA, whatever you want to call it. Basically, it's a process by which we try to solve a problem in a community with community voices leading that conversation. So often when, you know, there is a problem in our community, it's like government comes in and tries to solve it, right? Kind of on their own without necessarily deep engagement. Or if there is engagement, it's like a town hall where you can go speak at the mic for two minutes. And somehow in two minutes, that you have to present your entire life, all your trauma and a solution. God forbid you go to two minutes and five seconds because they're going to cut you off. And like we just don't think that that works. Right. That it just doesn't work. That's not the way that we can solve problems together. It's not a good way to honor the fact that people who are living day to day, seeing a challenge are the best people to try to solve it. And so the REIA is built as a process to say, how do we shift the power to solve problems to the people who are living it? So we start with asking the question, like, what are we trying to solve here? It could be something like, hey, we're trying to redesign this traffic circle. People keep getting into car accidents in this one spot. Now, you might not think that that has anything to do with race or racism or structural racism. But if you dig into it, you might find out like, oh, actually, if you try to redo this traffic circle and you want to add more green space, and you want to add a park and you want to make it look beautiful. Well, how is that going to play out when the neighbors who live around this green space now see their property values go up and they can't afford to pay their property taxes. And if they can't afford to pay their property taxes, they might get you know, priced out of their homes. And if those neighbors actually had kids who went to the local school, but the new people who come don't have children who go to that local school, how would that affect the education system and the fact that there's lower student enrollment, therefore there's less money going to that school because that's how our our schools are funded. And how does that affect who gets to use that green space and who's use of that green space means that the police are gonna come around and say, you can't gather here. So all of these things are intertwined. And so you, you start pulling on a thread as some something as simple as like, what is green space? And that's not a hypothetical. We What I just went over is um, the redevelopment of Logan Circle, the Logan Square Circle. So we worked with community-based organizations in Logan Square, including, including Logan Square Neighborhood Association and Lucha to bring neighbors together to talk about, okay, The Department of Transportation wants to redo the circle, they want to add bike lanes and beautify it and all these things. And, you know, if you talk to the Department of Transportation about it, they're like, this has nothing to do with structural racism. Like, what are you guys doing? This is not what that's about. And we said, no, there actually is an implication. And so because we look at that problem and we ask, "Okay, what's the issue? How do we what are the what's the history around this problem? What's the context? What's happening in our neighborhood otherwise? And once we can put together the stories and the research and data, numbers and narratives, then we can problem solve differently. So what we're not saying is please stop that traffic circle. No, we need to fix the traffic circle. We don't want people dying in that traffic circle, right? But how do we do that while knowing if we know that it's gonna increase displacement How can we solve for that and prevent it before it happens? And in that particular story that I'm sharing, one of the things that came out of doing that racial equity impact assessment is we said, okay, look, if you're going to redevelop the circle, we definitely need to have more affordable housing nearby. And so one of the things that that helped build was support for 100% affordable housing that went up around that circle. And that got passed by city council and partially in part because they realized like there's all this development. This isn't the only development happening in the Square, but this was a major one that was happening um, on the square itself, right? The circle itself. And if we want to do this, we have to think about how to secure housing for people whose homes would be impacted by it. How do we
0: close the racial disparities of Chicago? How can we make this possible, visible, tangible, more
9: livable? I mean, there's so many racial disparities in Chicago, right? I I think I did several years ago. I was hosting a workshop and I said, okay, you have one minute. I want you to write as many racial disparities as you can see in Chicago. And people just wrote. And we came up with hundreds of them in like a one-minute activity. We literally came up with so many in the group because It was everything from like where sidewalks are cracked to where trash gets picked up regularly and doesn't to, you know, people having access to the lake, all sorts of things that we can see around us. Some of these are more harmful. We just came out of a pandemic where people's literally lives were on the line. Um, But that's also true, you know, on a day to day basis uh, where Lakeview has 20 years longer lifespan, right, than, than the West Side. So you can work on these racial disparities one at a time. Or you could try to figure out what's at the root of all of them. And what we believe at Q is that the root cause of all of these racial disparities is who has power. And specifically, who has power as it's associated with our government. Chicago, even now, even with more diversity in who is in our government, still functions to serve and protect folks on the north side, and specifically white folks, white majority white communities. And you can see that basic bare bones financial statements, you can see that in our budget. You can see that in which neighborhoods of Chicago get protected and get resources for libraries, where their parks are greener, where the trees are blooming, right? And you can see that in where blocks and blocks of disinvestment are going on. And the only investment you see from city resources is policing. And so we know that this is a huge part of um, how we have to get at change. Is First of all, we need folks in neighborhoods that are experiencing the harms of our government to get involved to talk to their aldermen, to push on their aldermen. We're seeing that in the same neighborhoods where we don't have money and resources is also where we have aldermen who serve the longest time in government. So if you've been working in government for 25 to 30 years, and you know that there's likely no one who's ever going to push you, challenge you, call you out, there's a less of an incentive for me to show up and actually fight for my community. I also know that if I live in a neighborhood where, you know, there's not a lot of investment, I probably am also struggling to get everybody involved. Like I might be a person that wants to get involved, right? But like, I need to get other people involved.
12: We discovered on your website that you have a book that is available. Uh, It's pretty short. Do you actually plan on expanding that? Maybe creating a more lengthy book to help your cause? Or is that just like an informal thing?
9: Yeah. So I think you're talking about the equity playbook and that was, you know, we have a network of people that are all working on different in different ways to try to push for um, closing the racial disparities of Chicago. Right. And so that book was in 2019. We put together kind of an overview of different people's stories and what they're working on. Um, It's meant to inspire people to think bigger. I think a lot of times, like I get into my little pigeonhole, right? I do a lot of work in education. And so I think a lot about education issues, but it's helpful for me to know what are people doing on housing or um, environmental justice issues, et cetera. And so this book is really intended to be a place for you to draw inspiration, to connect with people that are doing work that you're interested in. We are working on an expanded version, um, and that's actually coming out uh, either end of this year or early next year. Um, And so what we wanted to do was to really focus on creating a clear definition around what we mean when we say equity. And our definition boils down to three parts. First is acknowledging history and recognizing the harm that has happened um, in the past and that we didn't just end up in a situation where now we have to solve for a problem, but we have to acknowledge how did this come to be? Um, What were the decisions and choices that were made by our government? in order to end up in in a situation where neighborhoods have more or less money than each other, that individuals and families have more or less choice as a result of that. Um, The second part is shifting power and specifically shifting power to black and brown neighborhoods and communities um, who have typically just not been allowed to be as involved in government and decision-making, whether that's actively through their own work or also through um, kind of who represents them and how those folks who represent them um, show up in the space. So how do we shift power and bring it as close to communities as possible? And then the third part is really about embracing accountability. So it's one thing to kind of name, this is what I want to see my elected officials do, right? It's a whole nother thing to be able to hold them accountable if they don't. And so we're in the in the new version of the book that we're publishing. It's a toolkit. It's really intended to focus on like different Sectors that create harm: government, philanthropy, media, research, um, different parts of our our communities, or different parts of the kind of society that cause harm on our communities, and how do we transform them?
12: So, for your Q virtual workshops, how was doing it online different from in person?
9: I love to tell people all the time, I am not an online person. I just don't like online work. Um, I think there's something that's really important about sitting with people in space together and not having any screens, right? Putting your phone away and really just being present with one another. It's so rare that we get to actually just sit and listen to each other. So, you know, online spaces... In a way, it's so much more difficult because people are literally at a computer. They could be doing other things on that computer. It could be hard to just be online right now. And um, you know, for a lot of reasons, it can be it's 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 just a different experience. That being said, I think I've been surprised at how how much people have still connected um using these online places and and being able to have these small group conversations and look at each other and say like why do you feel that way how 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 do I learn from you um what's your story you know what's the what's the thing that got you to this place and I think what's most important about online versions of our work is that you just have to have the commitment to really listen to people
0: if you could use a city's budget for anything something completely absurd like something the city would never fund, like an event, an organization, maybe something personal, even for you. What would you spend it on?
9: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got thirteen and a half billion dollars. What would I spend thirteen and a half billion dollars on? I, you know, that's 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 a wild question. I wonder if it would make. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I'm a kid that grew up with a lot of like, fairs. And they're just, like, really fun. And I feel like we have a really strong block party culture in Chicago. So maybe I would just fund like, the biggest block party summer ever. Just the wildest block parties that people can come up, you know, with. And then, like, Ferris wheels on, like, 63rd Street. You know, just huge, like, parades and floats and just, you know just wild stuff that, that would be fun like that. If if I was just trying to think of something absurd that the city would never fund. I think if I'm like trying to be more serious about things that we should actually fund, cause I don't believe in like, we would never fund it. I believe we just have to get there. Um, you know, everyone thought that an airplane was crazy until it was here. So if, uh, if I'm thinking big from that perspective, it's actually like, I think we need to think very seriously about what it would look like to build, um, a massive infusion of green jobs, um, including like being able to rejuvenate, you know, communities with community gardens, but also building like solar fields. Being able to think about what does it look like for us to get trained, um, trained up, and and work on building like massive um, revitalization projects where you know neighbors can work on homes in their neighborhood that are uh, that need to get fixed up and deserve the resources to do that. I think. I mean, the sort of the simplest answer to a lot of the challenges that we see is people having more dollars in their pocket. And so if we had, if all of us had, and specifically folks that are struggling to get by, had more dollars in their pocket, you would see a lot of things happening. Um, You would see people renovating their house or their apartment, right? Putting money into the ground by growing things in their communities. You would see folks fixing up their schools, fixing up bikes, having their own transit systems. Like, I want to see that. What is the end
0: goal or next step for the project
9: that you guys have going on? So our work right now, we are focusing on um, our big block party that's on July 31st. It's at Overton Elementary School. which was a school that was closed during the massive um, school closings in 2013. But this school in particular, and this community in particular, has really invested in that community coming together around this closed building and revitalizing reactivating it. There's community gardens, There's workshops that happen there regularly. And so we're partnering with Overton and the community around Overton to do a pop-up and block party around the people's budget on July 31st. We're doing that for folks who are interested in learning more about the people's budget, for folks that want to host their own people's budget and get trained on it, walk away with a little kit that they can host in their own community. Um, And we're also using that as an opportunity for us to say, okay, what is the citywide budget looking like?
8: Okay, Uh, so you guys just heard that interview with Nikita. And now it's up for us to think about the city's budget. The question I want to ask you guys is, how would you use the city's budget if it was up to you to use it?
0: I think the way I would use the budget is by giving a good amount of resources to the communities that are very shunned by the budget. You know, it feels like a lot of like, um. it feels like a lot more like wealthier and more you know, quote unquote, better neighborhoods get more money than like people around our neighborhood get for schools, clubs or like anything like that. So I think that's how that would be my main focus, you know,
1: but those communities are only better because of the funds that are allocated there to begin with, because exactly. girl, it's not exactly. like there is not the richness, the culture, the beauty on this side of the city mm-hmm. It's just not being <laughs> shined upon. So I think what really needs to be done is like some sort of assessment of like, because not all communities are in need of the same things. Communities on the the west and south side of Chicago are definitely in need of different things than the north side does. And so by first, you know, assessing what it is that each community is in need of, and then actually like, not just, okay, they need that. Well, uh, here you go, north side. But, you know, taking a step beyond that is what's needed.
5: That reminds me of kind of a little a little Oprah moment of like, you get some resources and you get some resources. You know, everybody gets resources, but the resources like you're saying that we need because not everyone's needs are the same. Personally, I feel like community resources is a big thing for me. I started with Yolokali roughly like four years ago and probably one of like the best decisions I've ever made. But I was also always involved in high school. I always looked for those programs because a lot of times We're also not made aware of those programs. So I feel like community resources for me would be a very big one.
0: I think maybe health, because I feel like at this point in time, like the way we are, it feels like having like proper health care seems like a privilege. And like, I know a lot of these like small communities don't really have those resources. And I think it would be good to help them get those resources, you know.
5: I think it was seen a lot throughout the pandemic, you know. I guess thinking back to that and like we've mentioned before, we've had like a gazillion pandemic shows, but this year we really saw how our communities, like we need more health resources. You know, I would come home and I needed a COVID test before I wanted to see my family because I was out of state for school. I stood in line in the cold for like an hour for a COVID test. By the time I got my test, I was like freezing and then they had lunch hours and they were like, I stood in line for half an hour and they're like, oh, we're going to lunch. So I came home, got warm, went back to stand in line. Like, you know, we, health is also so important.
1: And so what do you guys think the number is for what the city's budget actually is annually?
5: I don't want to know because I know I'm going to be upset that our community sees none of it. Well, not none of it, but you know what I mean.
1: Well, the budget as of 2020 for the city of Chicago was actually $12.6 billion. How does that make you guys feel? Where's my
8: money? Like we should get more.
5: That's a lot of money. You know how much I could do with $12 billion? $12.6 billion? Live multiple lives.
1: Buy right, five Birkins.
5: Five Birkins.
1: <laughs>
5: Buy everyone
0: in this
1: class a Birkin bag.
0: Pay
5: my tuition.
0: Pay mine too
5: we all going to college for
0: free, y'all. Yeah.
4: With, with $12.6 billion, you could pay everyone's tuition. Mm-hmm. You can
0: buy me a house and you'd still have so much money. Pay off my mortgage, retire me, my mom, my
1: whole family. <laughs> and where do you think that the money is mainly allocated to? I'm going to just
4: take a wild guess and say CPD. CPD.
1: Well, actually, the majority of the city's budget annually, at least last year, mainly goes to uh, loans that the city's paying off. You know, got to pay off the interest. But after that, the category that funds are mainly allocated to, you are correct, it's Carson System. It's the CPD, and they take thirteen point nine seven percent of the city's budget as of last year. Now, how does that make y'all feel?
5: <gasps> no. <Nope. Mm-mm. laughs>
8: They definitely, it seems like they definitely get more than what they need.
1: Kind of crazy to see a high percentage like that. And then also hear that the Chicago um, Police Department is one of, who knows it?
0: Some of the highest crime rates and like, this is your budget. It's kind of embarrassing. And then they want more.
1: They said, oh, I mean, with the numbers that we got, clearly we're in need of more money. I don't think that's the problem, baby. I
5: think I just saw that nationally, CPD is like the second worst in the nation. <laughs> I, mm.
1: In what outfits, looks, <laughs> or like in performance?
5: I think because the blue we, and black just doesn't match.
1: We see these cops walking around with their with their Burberry cotton jackets on. We see where the funds are going but it's not to protecting the people in the city. It's not to actually performing in their job correctly. If anything, the city is getting worse. So we need to really reassess the fact that, oh, do they need more money to let the crime rate go lower? Or should we be reallocating funds to things that can actually stop crime before it happens?
4: Uh, I recently read an article about how Chicago plans on using uh, mental health clinicians as first responders instead of police for some 911 calls. And I love that. I really like that idea because the, a big problem in the public's perception of police and everything is that usually it escalates uh, into violence because these uh, because police officers aren't equipped or trained to, to deal with uh, maybe mental health episodes or something like that um and so to have someone a trained professional come in first to like try and de-escalate the situation before using any force that's the way that we we should be doing it in the first place um so i hope to see more of that i know that that, the article i read was like written in july or so so i'd love to see how that goes and and if that goes well to see more money put into that
8: yeah definitely I think it's probably time for us to take a little break at this point. And that's actually going to be concluding our first hour of the show, The People's Budget. So we definitely heard some amazing interviews and some awesome commentary right here on 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, broadcasting from the comfort of our homes. So we'll be going on a short break for now, but we'll be back with more amazing facts and interviews in the second hour of our show.
3: Welcome back. You're listening to What's Up on WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 105.5 FM Lumpin' Radio, broadcasting still at our homes. My name is Nidia. I'm Adrian. Cynthia. Emmanuel. Jennifer.
12: August. I'm Miles.
3: And we just finished hearing from residents from the community what they thought about the people's budget, as well as hearing us talk about what we thought about it. Now we're going to talk to different people, including a little village alderman, and then wrap up our conversation. Let's get back to it.
5: If you were in power and could spend the money, where would you allocate
2: stuff? Uh Well, obviously we need more <laughs> for everything. I think education is probably the one of the most important, but I'm surprised to hear that it doesn't cover the CPS or anything. Education and housing, I guess, would be the two that I'd spend the most money on.
0: Yeah, as well as our mental health is a big one that resources should be going that route.
4: Last year, 2020, the highest expenditure for the budget was to CPD,
7: which took 13.97% of the budget. How are your thoughts on that? Good question, but very hard to answer. Um, I guess, you know, I'm not in the top, but due to all the violence, we probably needed to dip into that funding a little bit more, you know, putting officers more in the street and try to combat that violence more. Do I wish it to be like that? Not at all, you know. I think everyone should have their part. And give fair opportunity to get funding so the community can thrive and become stronger and you know less you know more safe ultimately. And so do you know the process of how the city spends its
10: budget? Only what I've seen on TV, so only what they want me to see. If you could how would you use the city's budget? I would do a needs assessment to understand where the greatest needs is and what the gap is in each community. You know, every day you wake up and the headlines in Chicago are about violence. And I would love to understand the correlation between that and education and hunger and homelessness, um, to see how that all intersects and understand which community has the biggest gap and where the rates are the worst and, and weight the budget to those communities and over index where the need is the greatest. In your opinion,
5: how would you spend the city's
13: budget? i education, food, water, work, entrepreneurship, how to help people start, like have their own business, uh, fair wage. I know that we know where the money needs to go. I know people, we know what we need. I think the problem is, do we have the, uh, the way to speak of what we need? Do we have, do are we self-educated to, to speak up on what we need? And who's distributing this money? And who's choosing where to distribute it? And is it being distributed equally? I think those are questions that are more important to me.
4: Last year, the 2020 budget, CPD took around uh, 14% of that. What are your thoughts on that?
13: See, and that, like I said, that's one of the problems. 40% is a lot for the CPD because I know they get funded every year. They, I see they have new cars. Like, a lot of money goes into them. And we've been funding the CPD over and over again. And the violence hasn't gone down. So I do have a problem with that, where they keep funding department department that that's not working. Is not, is not working for us. And so, yeah, I do have a problem. And that, that keeps happening. You know, we keep funding. Instead of the elected officials coming to the neighborhood asking, what do you guys need? They go to the immediate answer, which is policing, and that's, I don't think that's what we need. So, yeah, I think that money could have been used, you know, somewhere else in, in, in a better way.
5: If you had the power to use the city's budget, you know, looking at, they use it on health, education, housing, infrastructure, community resources, the carceral system, so, like, policing, where would you put that money?
2: I think it's a combination of things, but I would first start thinking about what communities need the most, right? So like what a community needs in the north side may be different from what the community needs in the south side. The community needs of the loop are very minimal to the community needs somewhere else where there's folks that are struggling to make ends meet, right? But a key piece, especially in La Villita and communities like La Villita, is being able to have uh, programs that are around affordable housing and increasing the quality of housing. Um, Because, you know, you can create a project like beautifying a park, or you can sort of like invest in a, you know, I don't know, like a a particular school. And, And those two things are really, really important by themselves. But then you got to ask yourself who's going to benefit from that if people can't afford to live in their own neighborhood anymore, right? And that's what you began to see in Pilsen and Logan Square, right? And other places of of Chicago, too. So I think it's all of that. It's investing in the schools, it's investing in like parks and and investing in housing so that the folks that live in that neighborhood get to enjoy the benefits of those types of investments um, I also think the city needs to do a better job at working with businesses so that businesses are accountable and pay better, right? Because part of the reason why folks can't afford um, you know, housing is because there's also they, the, the jobs that they have and have access to are not great you know, there's no benefits, there's no real um, incentives. I know that like, you know, folks had worked on Fight for 15. My mom worked on the Fight for 15 campaign because she's been a restaurant worker like almost all her life. But even $15 is no longer like what it used to be, right? And so we also have to be demanding more from like our the employers and, and regularly thinking about what's a living wage. I mean, I think it's really important to like, you know, like what you all are doing, but even other folks, for us to regularly engage in political education, because a lot of times when you speak with folks, you know, and you ask them, what are your main concerns in the neighborhood? What I've heard over the years, usually folks say education, the schools and the gangs, right? And that's how they frame it. But when you begin to ask them, okay, what does that mean? And they dig deeper, right? What they're really saying is, young people don't have spaces that they need we don't have the resources that the city should be allocating so for folks like when you actually engage them in conversation they have a really good understanding but it's about asking the what is the root cause of that right or is that a symptom of a larger issue right but i think that oftentimes what ends up happening is that whether it's television whether it's elected officials whether it's you know, wherever folks get their information, they don't do a good uh, like job at analyzing and digging deep enough. And that's a disservice. And it also assumes that our parents and our young people don't want to talk about things in that complicated way, right? We have young people and parents that are really smart, um, and very capable, and we should be engaging in conversations that are difficult to have about what really is the root cause of violence in the neighborhood, right? And I think that we will be better off because of that, because something like, you know, the murder of Adan Toledo, like, that's an example of decades of disinvestment and consistent blaming of the issues on gangs when we're not asking why are gangs here to begin with? Why are we investing in the police versus in community resources like you know so like we we don't ask the questions that need to be asked and so like creating more spaces like you guys are with your locali and in other youth focused youth development like spaces is it's a real part of the solution so I'm really happy you guys are doing that.
5: So we just finished listening to some more people from the garden you know I'm so glad we were able to get community members aside from the youth's input on this and I feel like we definitely need to continue these conversations and it's refreshing to hear new voices that we wouldn't hear otherwise. Jumping into our next interview, when Mayor Lightfoot comes up with the yearly budget, she doesn't do it alone or simply has the power to complete the budget with zero outside intervention. Typically, the elder people are there to propose adjustments to the mayor in an attempt to better accommodate the budget for the people whose lives are going to be affected by the final decisions that are made.
4: Whether they choose to go with the budget, the mayor proposed, or they choose to discuss a change to certain parts of the budget, in the end, they're still a part of the budget-making process. One such person is Mike Rodriguez, the alderman of the 22nd Ward here in La Vita.
11: First of all, thank you very much for having me. This is Alderperson Mike Rodriguez from the 22nd Ward.
5: Could you give us a brief overview of what an alderman's job is?
11: So in the city of Chicago, we have a mayor and we have 50 wards. Each of those wards has an alderperson that makes up essentially the city council, which is the city legislature. Each alderperson represents their ward. And in this case, the 22nd Ward is made up of 25 precincts. 18 of those precincts are in Little Village, west of Kedzie. Two of those precincts are in North Lawndale by CERMAC. And five of those precincts are ruled by 47th and Cicero, Biddle Park, Leclairhurst, and Sleepy Hollow communities. Many people don't know this, but my ward extends from CERMAC and Kedzie about to 51st and Laird. It's a lot of area, more than people know. And we vote on city law. But what's unique about City of Chicago council members or person is that we also function as the purveyor of city services for our districts. That's different than places like LA that has about 15 older persons, or New York, which is double our population, and has about 51 older persons. They are just legislative, all they do is vote. We run a ward office where we help with zoning changes, with development projects in the neighborhood, but also with city services, from garbage cans to lights out to everything in between.
4: What would be the easiest way to explain how the city's budget works to the community?
11: So the city budget is about $8 billion. The majority of the city budget is spent in public safety, like police and fire. And that's been growing as a percentage over the years because there's been cuts in other areas, but not in the police and fire. And that's really created this equity because we also fund things like the Department of Family and Support Services that works with people experiencing homelessness. It does after school programs. And um, that department hasn't seen the same growth as other departments. So I think many of us are questioning the equity when it comes to these funding. But the city of Chicago budget includes things like street lights, all sorts of public amenities that are pertinent to the everyday lives of Chicagoans.
5: With talking about the city's budget, how much power do aldermen have on changing the budget or having a say on that budget?
11: So essentially, the way it works historically is the mayor of the city of Chicago presents a budget for city alderpersons to then react to and. What that does is it creates this equity in the power structure, because essentially the the mayor gets to define the parameters of the debate. And then we as city council persons have to react to that. What we try to do this year is to create budget committees where our ideas are getting out there and we're kind of defining what the city budget looks like. One of my allies, Alderman Daniel Espada, he presented a proposal for using federal dollars that are tied to the stimulus for the most important expenses as we know them right now, as they relate to the pandemic. Rental assistance, mental health support, violence prevention work. I was a proud co-sponsor of that effort. And I hope that that'll help define the budget a bit better and give us as councilpersons, more leverage when negotiating the budget.
5: Do Little Village residents come to speak to you about the budget or residents of your ward?
11: Last budget season, I created a committee of my organization and worked with them significantly on the day-to-day maneuvering of the budget. I also was a part of the Progressive Caucus effort to have a budget hearing essentially for community residents. And I'd be happy to work with your group to figure out how we can get more input from neighbors on the city budget.
4: From the residents that have come to you, what concerns matter most to them?
11: I'll be quite honest with you. I think public safety is number one. And if you ask most residents what they want to see, many will say they want to see more police. However, when I'm able to talk with them and really break that down to really what that means, you know, I think people become much more reasonable and understanding of what we're trying to do as far as funding preventative work, you know, putting more money into our schools and putting more money into mental health resources and violence prevention programs that I think really create a safer neighborhood on the outset versus being reactive with police. I think that the second thing that people really care about is city services. They wanna make sure that their garbage is picked up, that potholes are filled. I don't know if y'all noticed, but this past week, there's been no less than 20, 30 streets in the ward that have been scraped and that will be filled. And there's been a bunch of alleys that have been scraped and will hopefully be filled. Well, that's decided by my office and because of constituents coming to my office and asking for that work to happen.
5: In your opinion, would you say that the city budget information is accessible
11: Yes and no. I mean, obviously it's accessible to those people who know the process, but many people don't know the process. And that's why what you're doing is so very important. Educating people about this process and getting people interested in it because it impacts the everyday lives of everyone in our community.
5: Uh, How would you say we could make that information more accessible?
11: You know, I think we got to be smart about how we do that. So first of all, we need to recognize that different people learn in different ways. And what I mean by that is I'm interested to know from you, do any of you use Facebook as young people?
5: Um, August said no. (laughs) So yes and no.
11: What mediums do you use if you don't use Facebook? I think Instagram might be the top. For your age group. I've never once used Instagram, right? Right. I, well, I have, but not, you know, I don't use it every day like I do Facebook, right? Or Twitter. I use Twitter a lot. But my in-laws who are senior citizens, they use Facebook all the time and they're on it all day. So how do we meet everyone where they're at? And how do we make sure we're getting as much input as possible? And to be quite honest, you know, even if we got a certain percentage of our neighborhood to understand what was going on, that would be great. And I think we do that by being comprehensive in how we reach out to folks.
4: In terms of uh, community involvement on, uh, on the budget, do you see more of the younger generations coming in and being more, uh, more active or older generations?
11: There have been young people who reached out to me on particular issues, and we have a very active community, which is amazing. If I think about the budget, we certainly have had a number of young people to reach out, but we could do better and we could try and get more young people engaged and involved, which has always been something I've been proud of. I think about my staff. A number of my staff I've known since they were in grammar School High School because I just have been a lifelong youth organizer. I believe in youth development. I ran a debate team for 10 years. I ran a youth organizing group for about a dozen years. I worked at Pachowski Park as a very young person organizing young people who are at some of the greatest risk of being the victims or perpetrators of violence. And I'm so happy that you're doing the work that you're doing and inspiring those your age to get involved.
5: Going back a little bit, getting a little specific about the budget, we noticed that in 2020, you disagreed with the mayor's proposed budget. And then this year, you voted in favor. Can you kind of walk us through what changed and why it is that your decision um, went from disagreeing to agreeing?
11: So there were two separate budgets, two separate situations. But let me talk about my political dependence. It's really derived from the fact that the organization that I'm involved with here in the local community was started in the early 80s. It was a group of progressive black brown and progressive white folks here in the community who were fighting against the machine the political machine that wasn't providing the city services that we needed here in the community they were sending our garbage trucks to other communities twice a week while we were getting picked up once every two weeks there was so many different injustices happening and our founder Rudy Lozano ran for alderman here in the ward against the alderman who didn't even live here from what I was told and Rudy almost forced a runoff and almost won that race however two months after he ran, he was assassinated and murdered. That community organizing that he came from, women's rights, immigrants' rights, is really the basis for who we are. But it's always been a group that's been independent-minded. So we, as a group, uh, continue to organize. And this is the group of people that recruited me to be first the Democratic Committee person of the ward and then the run for alder person of the ward. So that's the main group of folks that I consulted with in both years of the budget votes, in the first year, we had campaigned on a number of things that I believe were not reflected in the city budget, including reopening mental health clinics, more money for violence prevention dollars. And I didn't believe there was enough there to earn my vote. In the second year, uh, we were presented a budget and the Black, Latino and Progressive Caucuses came together, historic, came together and demanded four things. We demanded an increase From $10 million to $50 million in violence prevention, we got up to $36 million. We demanded that an immigration bill be taken out of the budget, and we won that. We demanded that no layoffs of city workers have. And in the budget, the original budget, there was talk of several hundred city workers losing their job. We were able to get those people, their jobs back in the budget. And if we didn't pass this budget, I believe several thousand people would have been potentially laid off. And the last thing that we fought for and demanded was funding for mental health first responders pilot. And we were able to get some money allocated to that, not as much as we wanted. But when I looked at those four demands, And I objectively counted them up. We got about 75% of what we were demanding and asking for. At that point, I felt this budget earned my vote. So the first year, I was a no. And this year, I was a yes because of the aforementioned things.
5: I know you mentioned the party. Would you mind sharing, if possible, what that is or the name of it?
11: We are the 22nd Ward Independent Political Organization. Independence in the name. To be quite honest, sometimes when I agree with the mayor, I'll agree with her. But you know what? I reserve the right to say no when I think she's wrong. And I've done that a number of times, including the first budget. And I think that puts me in a good position. I think people who are always no's, it's hard for folks sometimes at that point to get things done. And people who are always yes, to be quite frank, I don't think are doing as much as they could be and pushing back and pushing for more. So I'm proud to be you know, independent of this mayor and independent-minded when I make these uh, decisions.
4: Speaking of... Uh of uh, the mayor's choices. Recently, there was a proposal for an $80 million cut from the police budget. What's your take on this?
11: $80 million cut to the police budget. I am not aware exactly of what you're talking about, but I will say that I think we need to think critically about public safety. And I think communities are safer when we have the needed after-school programs Violence prevention programs in the community, mental health supports that our youth and our families need. So if it comes to saying we need to get police out of schools in order to reallocate those resources, I'm all for it. When it comes to potentially closing the Juvenile Intervention Support Center, which is not diverting kids from being incarcerated, but like putting them in jail, uh, potentially, I'm all for closing that. So I think we need to be uh, smart on crime, not just tough on crime. As a matter of fact, I've spent a majority of my career on this. So in the early 80s, there was about 500,000 people incarcerated in state and federal penitentiaries. We now have 2.5 million in this country incarcerated. We're only 5% of the world's population, but we incarcerate 25% of those incarcerated across the world. To me, that is a badge of dishonor for our country. We need to be smart on crime, not just tough on crime. And that needs to be reflected in our budget as well.
5: Like we mentioned, how this interview came up as a result of a workshop. In that workshop, we actually did a mock budget to see how us community members would spend funds on the city's functions. And surprisingly, we found that our spending priorities were in health and community services, as well as housing and infrastructures. The least for us actually was things such as public safety. Would you say that your views align with the youth?
11: I would say very much so but I think that you need to provide context. Like the fact is is that I agree that we need to put way more into prevention and intervention. Like you said mental health, public health after school programs, violence prevention. Those are all important things to me, things that I've worked on my entire career, particularly as executive director in Lasse where that's really what we did. We did after school programs and I ran violence prevention programs here in the community for years. I ran the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office for three years. That's the Cook County morgue. I've seen too many dead bodies due to overdoses or shootings. And we gotta stop spending so much money. After a crime is committed, we have to spend more money on building people up. That's how we create a safer neighborhood. That's how we create a safer city. So, with that said, yes, I do agree that we need to reevaluate our priorities and do things differently. I also understand that we have a lot of people in our community that are fearful. They're very scared about public safety, about the violence in our community, and they do want to feel as if there are the appropriate resources here for them when it comes to fire and, and policing and things of the nature. So I think we need to strike the right balance in making sure that we have the appropriate levels of policing. But more importantly, right now, we don't have the appropriate levels of prevention. money. That's my focus.
4: Earlier, you had mentioned that community members who voiced their uh, priorities to you mentioned they really prioritized uh, public safety and they wanted to see more cops. As youth, we see more of us want less cops, less policing. Do you think the difference is a result of uh, a generational gap or do you think the priorities have shifted because of the pandemic or since the pandemic?
11: You know, I think that the world is always evolving and changing. When you look at the Democratic Party of the 90s, federally, you see that President Bill Clinton, who some at that point called the most liberal president, was in favor of increasing fines, fees and jail time for offenders of crimes. And those efforts were supported by the vast majority of Democrats and all, almost all Republicans at the time. Now you see a different situation where many elected leaders are now championing getting rid of automatic sentencing laws. Giving judges more discretion as to how they can adjudicate someone, which inevitably leads to smarter penalties, smarter ways to deal with those incarcerated, including, you know, alternatives to detention. I think we have an amazing alternative detention program here in Little Village called the Urban Life Skills Program. So if you're a juvenile and you get caught up in the system, one way out of it, of incarceration is going through this program that provides mental health support, drug addiction support if needed, provides help getting back into school, into a job if you're a little bit older, and provides mentorship. To me, that's what we need to be focusing on. And that's what works in creating a safer neighborhood.
5: What would your words to the youth be that want to see the city's money allocated differently?
11: I think you got a partner in me. I want to see the city's money allocated differently. I wish more of my colleagues felt the same. You guys asked a great question. And I think it's a very important question because it's it's, it's really, it's really like huge. There are generational differences in the way people think about this stuff. But when we come together and we talk together, when we come together and have real dialogue, when we come to the table to speak together and like speak our truth and open our hearts to each other, you know, that's when we come to solutions. That's when we can come together and say, hey, this is how having a police state hurts me, if you're a young person. And if you're an older person, you know, this is why I feel scared. X, Y, Z crime has happened to me. I'm a senior and the other day someone stole my purse. You know, how am I going to tell that lady that I'm going to get rid of 75% of the police? But then how am I going to tell that young person that I'm going to add police to make them more fearful? But if we bring people together to have real conversations and dialogue, man, we come up with amazing solutions. You know what I believe in? I believe in community courts. I believe in restorative justice. And sometimes, you know, back when this was first a, a concept, you know, back 15, 20 years ago, and I was talking about it to people, they were just laughing at me. They thought I just wanted to be soft on crime. But no, I want to restore justice when justice hasn't been undone. I'm sorry. I do believe that if someone does something wrong, they should pay for it. But why not at the same time they pay for it, they learn and they don't recommit what the harm maybe that they caused? I think when we come together and have these real conversations and these real dialogues and challenge each other as well, because we do need to challenge each other we can disagree without being disagreeable. I think that's when we change the world. I mean, how long has it been since we've been fighting for immigration reform and a pathway to citizenship for our people? I mean, what do we got to do to get that done? I feel like you have people stuck in their camps, right? As an example, you know, I feel like if we were to bring people together to really understand what's going on in the working class people's lives, you know, I think people's minds and hearts would change. I truly, truly believe that.
4: One last question. Say you're in the mayor's position and you have to create the city budget. What are the top three city functions that you would prioritize? I love the
11: question because it speaks to a blank canvas and it allows us to be creative. I told you where I come from. I come from a world where I believe in that violence prevention programs work. Since I was in college, I've been and I've worked with people who are outreach workers who work day in and day out, well into the night to create a better neighborhood. I was out there at the end of May and early June of last year where I saw the worst of our community and I saw the best of our community. I saw the worst when I saw people from our community, our brothers and sisters, throwing bottles at anybody who wasn't from the neighborhood, particularly if they were black. That hurt me bad. That was one of the worst spaces I've ever been in my life when I saw that. But I was never prouder 24 hours later when our outreach workers got out there and they worked with those same guys who were involved with street organizations who were throwing those bottles and worked with those guys and those were the same guys who were doing murals around Black Lives Matter and those situations no longer occurred because we we spoke truth to power. We spoke truth to our brothers and sisters and said that more hurt doesn't resolve hurt. You know, love resolves hurt and we brought brothers and sisters together in love and it was the most powerful experience I ever had and it was such a 180 from one day to another. I believe in this type of work. So if I had to answer your question about what I would do, top three priorities, I'd make sure our young people have the ability to have full lives by investing them early. I'd make sure that they'd have the right mentors if you're at risk of being the victim or perpetrator of violence. You know, I'd make sure our residents have access to decent jobs that pay living wages. One of the staunchest allies of organized labor in the city council. I believe in organized labor as a means to build our economy and make jobs even better and make our economy better. When people are organized and making living wages, that's when we all do better. So those are the three things I would prioritize. And by the way, I know I'm missing some stuff. I know someone's going to be like, "Yo, well, you didn't do, you didn't say this or that." That's messed up. You know, <laughs> there's more to it, right? We have. Opportunities to put more money toward affordable housing, to put more money towards picking up our garbage. You're letting me go on. I will go on as long as I can with all my funding priorities. (laughs) Hey, the other one, man, our seniors, it's like we forget about them, man. We got to be there for them. They've been there for us. Like we need to be there for them, man. Um, I think about my dad. He had a stroke three years ago. And, you know, he's he's having major struggles, man. He, he's got major mental health issues. He's got major issues with filling his time and being, you know, being in productive spaces. And he's, he fears every day. We got to do more for our elders.
5: Is there anything else that you would like to add?
11: No, oh, this is wonderful. I think it's beautiful. I love the way you guys are doing this. I would really appreciate it if we kept on talking. I'd love to have your ideas about how we can get more people engaged in the budget. More people talking to one another rather than talking at each other that's the way we get things done. So I'm looking forward to it.
5: We just listened to an interview from the Alderman of the 22nd Ward. It was a great interview. We heard he's very open to talking to the youth, to knowing how we would like to get more involved and more of us involved and interested in these topics. I'd like to ask you guys, you know, we've already kind of touched on this, but what were your biggest takeaways on the workshop we had? Um, I can definitely start. I think one of the biggest shocks, I know we've mentioned the different parts in which the budget is allocated to, but, you know, education does not include Chicago public schools or the city of Chicago, the city colleges. And honestly, I thought that would be in education, because it is education. But we learned that that's a whole different budget and education is used in early childhood development institutions. So honestly, that's probably one of the biggest takeaways I got from that. And I was just completely
8: shocked. I can agree with you. I was definitely surprised by the education part. I originally thought it would at least include CPS. I didn't really think about the city colleges in Chicago because I feel like sometimes the colleges get donations and stuff like that too, apart from having their own budget. But I thought maybe like CPS would have some role in there, like, inside the Chicago's, inside of Chicago's budget, Uh, not only, like, preschool and all that. That was just, it was shocking. and It was just kind of weird to me.
0: I think my biggest takeaway is that we have such a big budget, and somebody's priorities ain't straight when making that budget, because, like, like you mentioned right now, like, CPS isn't even in it, and that kind of, it's a little infuriating seeing that the funds are, like, they kind of forget about CPS students, you know.
12: It is also hard to make a solid point for colleges and public education to be a part of the city budget when you're currently moving into a more privatization of education as more private schools more private colleges things that are owned by someone outside of the city it makes it a lot harder for the city budget to go to said schools and it's just a really big industry at the moment that's expanding so unless there's some roadblock that will stop it it is necess- i feel that there may be a point where it's just no turning back where everything is you know for capitalist government so everything will work how the people uh let it work
5: you know going back to someone's priorities and straight i think at the end of the workshop we saw where we would allocate funds versus where they're actually going, it was literally the opposite. They were completely opposites. And I think as a group, if I can speak for all of us, I think that was one of the biggest shocks. Like, you know, we are the people who live in the community, yet our mock proposed budget is literally the complete opposite of what the city actually does.
7: I
4: think the only thing we shared in common with the with the 2020 budget was was the amount of funds allocated to community community resources and that was about it yeah.
3: something that i feel like should be mentioned for like i guess the disappointment in the funding cps gets is that i feel like a school can get more money if it has like higher graduation graduation rates and low-income neighborhoods um are not as high as the ones more north school. So schools more north, I feel like they have a safe community and they are able to bring in different kids from different communities. And um especially in selective schools, for example, Jones, Jones is literally in downtown, you know, it's really close to where, where businesses and everything like that. So I feel like graduation rates and the conversation of school funding and stuff like that should also be addressed the reason why kids aren't graduating schools i i think i heard something say um the more graduation rates a school gets the higher it is the more money they're more likely going to get from the government because they're cuz the government sees that those schools are doing well that people want to go to those schools people want to learn but the schools that don't get enough money it's because their graduation rates aren't as high. And then we started thinking, okay, why don't kids want to graduate? So I feel like it brings another conversation in for the reason why there's so much disappointment in why CPS doesn't doesn't get enough money in general from the government.
8: Yeah, I can definitely see what you're talking about, media, because there's a lot of neighborhoods, a lot of black and brown neighborhoods where schools end up closing because they don't have enough funds or just people aren't graduating, people don't go to school stuff like that and that's just a problem that's continued on for countless years and just not having enough money is a problem that's plagued black and brown communities especially on south and west sides for a long time now it's time for us to wrap up our show on our show today we discussed the importance of including different neighborhoods, into the conversation on how the city budgets its money, especially black and brown communities, as well as educating how the decisions of the city bureau affect Chicago in today's day and age. We want you guys to remember that you're listening to WLPN, LP Chicago, 105.5 FM, Lumpin' Radio, broadcasting from the comfort of our homes. My name is Adrian.
3: I'm Nidia. Emanuel. Cynthia. Jennifer.
1: August. Miles.
8: And this was the third radio show of What's Up Season 17, The People's Budget Show.
0: Hello, it's me. I haven't heard from you in a while.
1: I hope it's because you're listening and enjoying our amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delicious, funny, breathtaking, wee snatching lady-popping production.
0: If not, you should listen to our radio show, What's Up, again.
1: In the meantime, we'll be twerking on our next one. Here in
10: Lumpin' Radio.
1: So stay tuned for our next amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delicious, funny, breathtaking, weave-snatching, highly amazing production. I hope that you were informed about the yolo-licious parts of life and get your bag every
0: Don't forget to listen to us on SoundCloud at Yolocali on social media like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Tumblr at Yolokali, or visit at yolokali.org for more.